Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Rudina Cesari is founder and managing partner of Glasswing Ventures, an early stage VC firm investing in AI and frontier tech startups. She focuses on AI-enabled enterprise SaaS, cloud, IT software, and vertical markets. Glasswing is based in Boston, Massachusetts. Regina, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on the show and we're really looking forward to learning more about your perspective as an investor and about your fun Glasswing Ventures. So ahead of us diving into Glasswing, it'd be great to spend some time on you and your background. You have such an incredible personal story and journey, which has understandably had a profound impact on shaping you and your worldview. So tell us about that. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jen and Thanasis, for having me on the podcast. My journey has been one of coming to the States from Albania in search of a better education, and then um, going to Wellesley College undergrad, which was quite defining of the person and the woman and the professional that I've ultimately become, and then working on Wall Street in the early days at the tech group at Credit Suisse First Boston where I jokingly but truthfully say that I caught the tech bug. And from that moment, I was there in the early 2000s. From that moment, it all became about technology and innovation. I went to HBS, Microsoft, and have spent the last 15 years being in venture, backing startups, and launching my own venture. So I've lived the journey. So I know, Rudina, that you are originally from Albania and coming from a neighboring country myself. I would be very curious to understand what motivated you to come over to the U.S. for schooling. Thanasis, at some other point, I'd like to tell you how my wedding mirrors my big fat Greek wedding, the Orthodox (laughs) Church and all that, and the being spit on. But we will table that for another conversation. So it was interesting. The, the way I ended up in the States was I'm the accidental immigrant in, in many ways. I was working for USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development, as a summer intern and had an exam put in front of me. It was an English test and some physics and some math, and I forgot about it. And the next thing I found out was that there was leftover funding and there were only so many private schools in the U.S. that were qualified, one being in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a private Christian school, in fact. And next thing I knew, I, who didn't even have a passport, uh, my mother, a very strong person, sort of encouraged and said, this is your chance, go. So at the age of 15, I got on a plane, never having left the country, and the rest is history. A bit more dramatic, but that's the gist of it. Incredible. We talked prior to our conversation now about your experience at Wellesley. And I went to an all-girls school for high school, and that had such a profound impact on me and me finding my voice and instilling this kind of internal belief in myself. And I'd love to hear from you about how Wellesley really shaped you as well. It's interesting, the sheer richness of an academic experience I had at Wellesley, where 
the assumption was the sky's the limit. I think, especially for women and young girls in, in general, we grow in, in cultures where there are boundaries to everything we do. To go and be in an environment where you're intellectually exploring different journeys, different fields, and you're here to make a difference, I think instilled something that perhaps was already there, but certainly drew it out of me, which is, hey, the sky's the limit. And as long as I have the opportunity, I will make the most out of it. And, And it's interesting because it's a characteristic that I see of a lot of graduates from liberal arts and especially women liberal arts or girls schools in particular. And I miss no opportunity to pass it on to my daughter. To give you an example, while I was at Wellesley, I wanted to travel to India and explore peace and justice with Mahatma Gandhi's great-grandson. They found the funding and on the plane I went. I wanted to study enough credits at the time to graduate in international relations and economics double major, but I really wanted to do a minor in Latin and Greek literature in translation, did all that. So it was very much about having a platform that enables and empowers. Absolutely. And having multiple family members who went to Wellesley, I know that they would all (laughs) echo the same sentiment. So that's incredible. I was curious, Rudina, how you got into venture, because each of us have a different path and sometimes it's serendipitous. Obviously, you're interested in tech, but just how did you make the switch and why? Absolutely. My journey to venture is also the same starting point as my journey to Glasswing in that I had just made the transition from investment banking to business school. I was at HBS and I met a relatively recent graduate by the name of Brick Grinnell, who had been an engineer by background, had done a number of startups, had gone on to HBS and then was doing venture capital. He came to speak on campus and I was chairing Cyberposium, which was, and I think is still the largest sort of tech conference organized by any university in North America. And Rick was speaking. So we became good buddies. And I ended up, I remember in the spring semester doing a, this is the early 2000s, doing a thesis uh, in a, a landscaping, I think, analysis on the mobile infrastructure because mobile was going to emerge. And from that perspective, got to know Rick, was very interested in venture, sounded like so much fun. And at the time, Rick actually gave me really good advice that I needed to get some operational experience. I got the tech, got the sort of finance side of it, but go do, if you will. And I think wiser words um, have not been spoken. So I went on to work for Microsoft and, and got that experience. But then Rick and I reunited when they were raising their next fund. He called a man true to his word. I hopped over all the way from Seattle to Boston. And 15 years later, here we are. And what would your advice be to people who are looking to break into venture? One, there isn't a path, one set path. You can enter venture at many points in time in your career and through various paths. I think a balance of having operational experience in technology or life sciences or others, and depending on one's area of interest, is quite important. I think you will garner a lot more respect from the founders, knowing that you've been there and done that, you will also be more value add to them. I think having finance or strategy backgrounds are definite pluses and help make a complete packet. 
But I will say number one thing is having been in a founder's shoes, the ability to evaluate opportunities and be evaluated once you've made the investment quite relevant and more impactful. Absolutely. Tell us now a little about Glasswing, the genesis of the fund, the idea behind the strategy and what you all look to accomplish. Absolutely. Glasswing is a relatively new entity. We'll be turning five in the next few months. And I'd mentioned in the earlier question when you'd asked me about how I got into venture, that Rick was the reason I got into venture. He was also he's my co-founder at Glasswing Ventures. So we were in a prior firm together where we worked for a decade as part of a team focusing on enterprise and security and platforms where we were looking for some facet of frontier tech, advanced analytics, some form of disruption that ultimately evolved into, at least for the current wave, into AI as a core differentiator in addition to having the right team and the right execution and the market opportunity. So we were doing that as part of an early stage, but generalist platform. And as we were approaching the 2015-2016 timeframe, we fundamentally believed that and continue to believe that AI was going to be all disruptive. It was going to be a technology that cuts, uh, that cuts all across the tech stack and that it was going to be transformative in nature. Narrow AI or applied AI in the early innings, if you will, and then more advanced forms, perhaps asymptotically getting near general AI, if ever. So with that view, we thought that the market opportunity was gigantic, even though the strategy is focused on purpose. And so we did a very friendly spin-out from our old firm and launched Glasswing with the idea of being a transformative firm backing transformative companies. And what was it like building Glasswing from the ground up? A lot of people can understand and conceptualize the tangible components of what it takes to create and run a business, but I would love to hear your thoughts about the intangible components like culture and a set of values that you had to think through and create in order to build the team that you have, which sounds incredibly close-knit and also attract the founders that you're backing today. So I'd love to hear about that from you. I'll say this way, at least to get our conversation going, it's a rare privilege. How many times in our lives do we have the opportunity to start with a clean piece of paper, so to speak, or a blank slate and design something from scratch and build it from the ground up? It's, it is and it has been an exhilarating experience. I don't think I've ever worked harder. I don't think I've ever been happier. And in part because we refer to ourselves as a glasswing family in our everyday talk. And it truly is. It's very mission driven. We're there to support our founders for the benefit of our investors. There to be, especially in the early days, we're seed stage investors. We view ourselves as the extensions to the founder teams. We live in many ways through their ups and their downs, their successes and their failures. And we're more than just along for the journey. We're an active part of the journey, whether we're trying to get them customers, whether we're trying to support them and get them basic stuff like better rates with vendors, et cetera. Same thing for Glasswing and the team. Everyone behaves like an owner. We all have carry in the in the firm mm-hmm. or in the funds rather on purpose back to all being aligned. And while at the end of the day, this is a job and career, it feels a lot more like this is mission driven and we're here to make an impact 
and a long-lasting impact. And I think you will find that sense, not just with me, but with everyone on the team. And what is your perspective on artificial intelligence, AI? It's clearly accelerating our entry into the fourth industrial revolution, and it's having such a profound change on many industries, and we're just at the beginning. So what is your view of what is going on in that space? Yeah, it's a very open-ended question, and I agree with, with your um, premise that it is wide-reaching and transformative in a permanent way in many regards. I think the way that the lens at which we look at AI is, as I referenced earlier, through narrow or applied AI, at the, at the current inning, the broader purpose the AI engines that you build are the, you are going to suffer in outcomes and results, whereas a narrow word doesn't mean narrow. It means the more purposeful, the more focused the engine is. Specific use the, case, in other words. Yes, right? exactly. Specific use case or just and you're not trying to be everything to everyone, the higher performance you get. So the lens at which we arrive at it is we're looking at the enterprise markets, whether and security markets, whether it's automation, whether it's human augmentation, whether you're trying to get things like customer success automation and part of the performance or leverage existing infrastructures for higher performance. You can leverage AI engines of different forms. And when I say AI engines, we can decouple the algorithms and the various ML techniques and data as the how in the quarantine in any way. So you can leverage those to, to deliver results. So we come at it from that point of view. We are less focused on backing cool transformative techniques in search of a use case. I think those are harder businesses to build. Is there a specific example that you can walk us through in your portfolio that maybe makes that case? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. We are thesis-driven investors. So we have some horizontal thesis, but one being we look for certain verticals of, or industries where AI can truly be transformative and manufacturing and supply chain is one of those verticals. In fact, our first foray into that thesis. So I made an investment a couple of years ago in a company called Verison, V-E-R-U-S-E-N. And what Verison does is it takes hold of all the inventory data, non-production parts inventory data, and cleanses and harmonizes it such that at any point in time, a manufacturer knows in reality that their physical inventory stock matches what their system of record is showing because it's very common in manufacturing that you think you have a part, but in fact you don't, then you have to either bring the line to a stop, which is millions of dollars you know, per day in costs, or you have to emergency order it and pay premiums of all sorts. And these can add up to billions per year at a, in an aggregate level. So one Verison's platform does all the cleansing and harmonizing, but what's really interesting, they also leverage their AI engine for the prescriptive part of um, what the platform delivers. I have concrete examples where in just the first few months of customers having Verison on board, they have saved tens of millions of dollars in hard dollars approved by procurement. That's a perfect use case where there is a problem in the industry and the AI engine can help in a very impactful way alleviate that problem. You guys just announced a recent funding with Erfreeze. Yes, we did. 
Can yes. you speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. These are former founders from Inside Squared, HubSpot. One of the co-founders was actually an intern at Glasswing for quite some time. We love the team and they're tackling a very big problem, which is the demo portion of any software, you know, tool or platform. Typically with demos, you either require to ensure that the demo goes directly. I mean, the joke is it's not a demo unless it crashes, right? Or, you know, somehow you've got to find a way, maybe you have two different environments, one for the demo environment, one for the live code, very, very hard to manage. Overlay to that, the increasing trend of product-led sales, customers want to try before they buy, they want to tinker with a product on their own, whether it's from a sales or marketing perspective. The idea of creating a market around automating demos such that they're stand, automatically in a matter of seconds standing up the equivalent of an application that's a customized demo for a customized, for a particular customer, full right. experience vis-a-vis sort of what the demo would be in the live code, but it's not live. So you guarantee the experience, you, it's not going to crash. You can guarantee that the salesperson will follow the steps, the honing steps on how they should be marketing and selling the product. Very, very excited for those guys. Yeah, definitely. And so you had mentioned a little bit earlier how much value you and your team add to the founders within the Glasswing Ventures portfolio. So I'd love to spend some time on the robust platform that you and your team have built, which includes an advisory network and a trust network and much more, but I'll let you speak on that. Absolutely. So uh, building back on the conversation we were having about, you have a clean slate, how would you like to do things in venture? One of the facets is about the depth of engagement. You don't want to show up just for a board meeting or do a call here and there and you're a value-add VC, quote unquote. So what we did from the very beginning, we said, what are the areas that our founders and entrepreneurs need help with? And the first two things are customers and talent. Head of sales, head of product, head of marketing. So we said, okay, we're going to deliver um, what we call an end-to-end systematized platform. So meaning we're going to support them with recruiting, with helping them land appropriate customers, but also automate some of the mundane functions that are needed, but won't make them win. Like, hey, DNO insurance, where can I get the best rates? What's the healthcare? What's the best plan for me? If you have a good SaaS dashboard that's live, that has the latest and greatest, and so on and so forth, none of this will make them win. But boy, if we can reduce the friction, won't we free them up? So our platform runs the gamut from our own machine learning capabilities and databases on recruiting to um, actually an advisor network that you referenced where we have at this moment 40 advisors, 4-0, that run the gamut from AI and researchers and academics. We look to that group to remain both cutting edge for ourselves and our portfolio companies on the latest and greatest breakthroughs. We have C-level executives in Fortune 100s. They all source for us as well, but really they, during due diligence, they help us come to a view. Oftentimes they become customers, which is a very nice added bonus. And then also a group of entrepreneurs, the grand majority of whom we have backed in the past. So those folks say uh, service advisors, 
Then in addition to that, we have trust networks, founders talking to each other, heads of revenue talking to each other, heads of marketing connecting with each other. It's lonely at the top and you don't always want your VC or your director, big brother watching, and we're fully cognizant of that. So instead we facilitate the forums. If they want an external speaker, if they need some market data, we're there to enable, but we pull back and our founders and various execs rotate on responsibility And it's a group that has taken a life of its own. In fact, of all the facets of our platform, it's the one that has surprised me the most in terms of how much it has caught on fire. Yeah, no, I I can believe that. And then there's another piece of that too, which is Ignite, right? Can you speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. As East Coast investors, I found our market to come and go and come again. Venture was started in Boston. And then if you look back, maybe five, 10 years ago, the market nearly died in part because we were backing gray-haired professors is what I'd like to say, and the West Coast was backing students. And I think we need to back both. What Ignite is, it's a program where we have students throughout the universities that we're doing two things. One, they are sourcing for us lots and lots of startups coming out of academia. While we think we have amazing talent, that's not unique to us. There are other firms that do that as well. Mm -hmm. What I think is unique is what we give back to the students. We actually train them. So we offer classes. I think the current cluster is 26 students. And Cleda Martiro on our team oversees that effort from a content perspective. We're actually training them. So they're studying term sheets. They're studying a facet of our business. And then they're going to investment committee meetings and writing you know, recommendations. And we have real dollars that we back. So it's truly a two-way street in that regard. When you look at AI and its potential kind of for the future, what do you think is the constraint to its adoption today? And then what is likely to be the accelerant to make widespread use? So I think on the constraint side, I think it's twofold. Infrastructure probably remains a constraint as much as we have made huge strides with the adoption of the cloud. I think that will continue to be alleviated because of what we're seeing in the early days around compute at the edge. But I do think that infrastructure still plays a role. I also think data with all its limitations, not just in quantity, I think over time, especially you made a reference to industrial revolution sort of 4.0, as we continue to have more sensors, there will, there will be continued connectivity. We have a term in, internally that we use, pervasive connectivity. More data will emerge even when we're in still states. So I think the quantity, while it's a barrier now, it will become less so over time. But I think the quality, the veracity, the biases in the data are things that we need to take very seriously. So I wouldn't be surprised as we see more and more data that some of the adoption would both be accelerated with the increase of it, but also potentially become a bit more regulated, whether it's through ethics agreements, standards, or regulatory bodies becoming involved, particularly around the biases. And we take it very seriously. Yeah. In terms of looking at AI and its implications for society in general, we're obviously all optimists and we think that better technology will make things better. But a lot of people are worried about people losing their jobs or huge disruptions and people are going to have to be retrained. How do you think about that? Is that something that policymakers need to worry about? 
I believe so, yes, because I think net data and studies show on mass that net AI will create more jobs, not fewer jobs. And in fact, they will be more creative roles because the mundane gets automated. You hear mundane, you hear structured data, you hear automation, right? The mundane will, will become automated, making room for more creativity, more empowerment. So the final outcome is a positive one, more employment, higher satisfaction roles. What happens along the journey is actually disconcerting because I do think we will see a displacement of workers. Will the role of a medical doctor go away? No. But do we really realistically expect the medical doctor of 10 to 20 years from now to have the same profile as they do today? I don't know. Do you really need someone to start looking at your x-ray if the machine can look at it with 99.999% reliability or whatever that right level of confidence is? Maybe they will become a hybrid of medical doctors and statisticians. Maybe having a doctor who's 67 years old because he, he or she has seen it all is not as necessary. It's a different profile. So from that perspective, in the interim, we run the risk of having a big portion of our society actually be displaced and need to be retrained. And we've seen that in the past with lower um, paying and lower wage roles. We will see that occur unless there's some intervention or some training going on with the highly trained, highly educated, white collared workers. And that's something to take very seriously. And I don't think there is much thought that has gone into it, at least in the form of active policymaking. And I just w wonder whether our secondary education system is even thinking about those implications or moving in that direction, because post-secondary education is a different thing. But the person that doesn't go to college anymore has to be trained to take on some of these technical jobs. But are, are we there? A lot of other countries are making bigger investments, right? Look at compared to the U.S. with China we're far behind in every regard. Basically, the main community that's investing in AI and anything related to AI in general is the private sector, is the venture capital and related groups at a federal or even state level, at a government level, we're far behind. Whereas other countries have viewed this opportunity as a chance to cross the chasm into a whole new era of leadership around technology and development. I read recently that Boston startups and tech firms have raised about $5 billion in October. How many of your companies have raised since COVID, since about March? And what is your advice to them? Or what was your advice to them? More than I ever thought that there was. <laughs> I, I joke because... It's the trend. <laughs> Speaking to someone earlier today, one of my, my founders, and I was saying I have an embarrassment of riches. I have three portfolio companies right now as we speak in the middle of financing. So two out of three were preemptive financing. I would have loved if they sequenced themselves, but if I have to be busy, this is what I want to be busy with. I think we, but to answer your question more directly, I think we saw a pause in Q2 as everyone was getting their bearings around what COVID meant. What did it mean for the existing portfolio, allocations, et cetera? And if what I'm seeing around our portfolio and in the East Coast market is an indication, we have picked right back up. And if anything, we we'll probably have closed that gap of whatever opportunities were not taken during Q2, we're just about fully caught up. 
So from that perspective, I think we're moving on. We've adjusted. We've also made new investments. Reprise, in fact, that we talked about earlier was a new investment. And we have found our pace as a firm to where we do probably 80% of everything over Zoom. The three of us are doing yep. now. And in the balance, we do have that walking coffee, welcome to Rudina's deck at her house mm-hmm. type meeting. Well, that sounds nice. And about how many investments do you make a year? It varies because we have a pre-seed program, which is hundred dollars to $250,000 checks. We see more volume as a result yep. of those, but our core investments are a typical check is $2 million in the initial investments with reserves. So I would say on average is two to three of those a year. We've had years when we've done more and we've had years when we do, we've done fewer. And then you overlay the pre-seeds and it's probably somewhere five to seven investments a year. Rudina, what is your perspective on Boston? Historically, one of the top tech centers in the U.S., maybe fallen a little bit behind with the advent of New York. But what is your perspective on all of that? It's interesting. If we had this conversation five years ago, I would have said, listen, let me convince you. Is the market in the making? It's come back. If anything, we have a very developed entrepreneurial ecosystem, especially on enterprise and the B2B markets. And we just need to have more capital available to back it. Today, I think it's almost a moot point, whether I'm talking to founders, other VCs, funders, funders of VCs, OLPs and the likes, I think there is a widely acknowledged sense that the Boston market has come back and has come back in full force. There's been a whole crop of new VCs that have popped up because of that imbalance between quality founders and opportunities to invest more and VC emergence. And we're seeing the outcomes. Recent data has shown that on a return basis, the East Coast and West Coast, from a multiple perspective, are equal, even though we have a lot fewer capital and dollar concentrations here. And Boston, New York, even the D.C., Maryland area, I think of it as one continuum. We've made investments in Atlanta. That's an emerging market. Canada is a very interesting opportunity as a region, particularly around AI. So I think of it more broadly as well. But we have quite a few investments in Boston and we're seeing no lack of ambition and no lack of talents. So I'm quite bullish. Great. At this point, we're going to flip to our standard questions in an attempt to get to know you better. So question one is if you could have a magic wand and change or improve something in the VC industry, what would it be and why? I would probably make it a more transparent industry. I would love for founders to know and not have to guess as to what we are thinking. And I'd love for us not to have to guess and wonder what our investors and LPs are thinking. I think transparency, it's one of our three foundational stones, if you will, for Glasswing as well. There is no founder that pitches us or meets with us or is in a portfolio that's uncertain about what we're really thinking. I think in 15 years of doing this job, I've never said to a founder or founder, give me two more quarters of traction and come back because that's a solid no. Let's just not kid ourselves. I know we need to be nice. We're in the business of saying no for the most part, and we want the entrepreneurs to come back over and over. But I think transparency, honesty, and genuine interest and respect, I think 
would really be wonderful and taking that to, to a whole new level. And if you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what career would you have? Can I have two? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think one, I'd want to be an author. I don't know quite an author of what, but I think it's, I don't know, there's something really sexy about writing, writing books. I don't think I'd have the patience and the creativity, so I would fail. But gosh, there's a part of me that thinks that would be amazing. Otherwise, don't laugh, a college president or university president, there's something again about that intellectual aspect, but there is a fundraising aspect and you're managing different constituencies, not always aligned. There's something about leadership by influence there that I find very appealing. I think you'd be great at that. <laughs> yes, I was about to say, you yeah. may have people come knocking. <laughs> no, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I, I'm focused on returns, people. <laughs> And who is someone you look up to and why? My mother. She has been um, an incredible source of inspiration for me. We started this conversation with the question of how I came to the States and my beginnings. What I failed to mention in my journey from Albania to the U.S. is that it was my mother, um, a single mother. My father had passed away who basically said, this is your chance in pursuit of bigger opportunities. Go. And now I'm a mother on my own and have a daughter. I cannot fathom the idea of sending my 15-year-old across the world for better opportunities. So a very strong leader in her career, a very strong figure in my life, and very forward-thinking. Definitely. Super. And finally, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Ideas are great. Execution is better. That's definitely great advice in our industry, right? <laughs> <laughs> for myself and for others. I have a hundred good ideas a day myself. Can't get them done. It's about execution. <laughs> Absolutely. Regina, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciated the opportunity and it was great to hear all of your answers and get to know your story more. Thank you so much, Jenny and Tanas. It's a total pleasure and I hope we stay in touch. <laughs> And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC. Mm-hmm.